We'll be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46. This is the word of the Lord. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and their wives, in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him. His sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben were Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Puva, Job, Shimron. The sons of Zebulun were Serid, Elon, and Jahleel. These were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padan Aram, with his daughter Dinah. All the persons, his sons and his daughters, were thirty-three. The sons of Gad were Ziphion, Hagi, Sunni, Esbon, Eri, Aradi, and Areli. The sons of Asher were Jimna, Ishua, Isui, Berea, and Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Berea were Heber and Malkiel. These were the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin were Belah, Becher, Ashbiel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupam, Hupam, and Ard. These were the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, fourteen persons in all. The sons of Dan were Husham, and the sons of Naphtali were Jasiel, Guni, Jezer, and Shelem. These were the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body, besides Jacob's sons' wives, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob, who went to Egypt, were seventy. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph, to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot, and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him, and fell on his neck, and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, because you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, 
I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock, and they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. There's a painter in the late 1800s from St. Joseph, Michigan, by the name of Ralph Ransom. And he was once asked why he worked so diligently practicing his art on a daily basis. And he responded by saying, before the reward, there must be labor. You plant before you harvest. You sow in tears before you reap in joy. So the analogy is taken from farming and he applies it to art. If he wanted to reap the joy of becoming a great painter, he had to work hard at his craft. Patiently, over time, build up those skills. The Apostle Paul applies the same analogy to the Christian life. He says in Galatians 6, 9, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. If we would reap a harvest of everlasting life, which is mentioned in the verse just previous to that, we must persevere to the end. In both cases, the idea is that we must not expect to harvest before the crop is ripe, before the time of harvesting. We must exercise hope and patience. This is true of the gardens we plant, of our careers, our artistic endeavors, and our sanctification and eventual glorification. There is a time to sow, and there is a time to reap, and we must learn patience in between. This is also true concerning the promises of God. God has made promises, and He will fulfill them, but He will do so in the time that He has appointed. And we've seen what happens when men try to keep God's promises for Him. Remember Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael. In their impatience for the promised child, Abraham and Sarah tried to keep God's promise for him, and that didn't work out so well. But God had promised Abraham more than just one child. He had promised to make him a great nation. 215 years have passed since that promise was made to Abraham, and his family has grown, but not to the size of a nation. Abraham's wife, Sarah, had been barren. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was barren. Jacob's wife, Rachel, was barren. And now Jacob's family, though fairly large at 70, not counting their wives, is removed from the land of Canaan and shut up in a corner of Egypt, driven out of their promised inheritance in the land of Canaan by a famine and now dependent on Joseph to keep them alive. This is God's plan? But it seems like an unlikely plan for making a great nation to cause them to have barren wives and remove them from the land of their inheritance. But this was God's plan. And it was accompanied by his promises 
And so it will come to pass. God planted the seeds of Israel in the soil of Egypt and then fertilized it with the promise of his presence with them, guaranteeing that they would grow to become a great nation and that he would then transplant them back to the land of Canaan at the appointed time. So let's examine this episode in the life of Israel and see what we can learn about God's promises and the patience that we must have as we wait on his promises and the making of a nation. Jacob had received the news at the end of chapter 45 that his son Joseph was still alive. And so he sets himself to travel to Egypt to see his son. But before he leaves the promised land, he has one important stop to make. He travels to Beersheba. Now this is a special place of communion with God for Jacob. This had been a place where both his father and his grandfather had communed with the Lord. It was at Beersheba that Abraham, in in chapter 21, had called upon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Isaac also traveled to Beersheba, where the Lord visited him in a vision in chapter 26, and so he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. So now Jacob travels to Beersheba to call on the Lord before making his journey to Egypt. And and I would suggest there are probably multiple reasons why Jacob feels compelled to go call upon the Lord in Beersheba. First, it's likely that he wants to express his thankfulness to God for this news that he has received that his beloved son Joseph still lives. He had spent over 20 years mourning for his son, believing him to be dead. And so I'm sure that when he received the news that Joseph still lived, he was overcome with thanksgiving and wanted to express that to God and maybe felt as if he should offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving on the altar that his father had built in Beersheba. Secondly, he was probably seeking the Lord concerning this journey from Canaan to Egypt. It's a difficult journey. Jacob is old at this point. Traveling would be difficult and possibly even dangerous, but I think it's more than simply asking for safety on this journey. If you'll remember back in chapter 26 and in the life of Isaac, Jacob's father, there had been a famine in the land, and Isaac had packed up and left his home and was considering going to Egypt. But then the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. God then goes on to renew the covenant promises with Isaac, promises of the land of Canaan, of a multitude of descendants, and of a seed that would be a blessing to the nations. Well, this has to weigh heavy on Jacob's mind and his heart. God had forbidden his father Isaac from leaving Canaan and going to Egypt during a famine. And now Jacob has set himself to leave Canaan and go to Egypt during a famine, and he might be wondering Will God be upset with me if I do this? Is he going to be angered if I leave Canaan? But he desperately wants to see his son, Joseph, in Egypt. And so he stops in Beersheba to offer sacrifices, to show his thankfulness to God for the news that Joseph is alive and to seek the Lord's will concerning a trip to visit Joseph. And third, I think that Jacob may be remembering the last time he left Canaan. Remember when he fled from his brother Esau. 
He went to Padan Aram in Syria to visit his mother's family in search of a wife. And at that time, God appeared to Jacob before he left Canaan and promised to be with him and to protect him and to return him safely to the promised land. So Jacob may not simply be seeking permission from God to go to Egypt, but perhaps some assurance from God that these earlier promises might still be in effect. So he goes to Beersheba, where both Abraham and Isaac before him had called upon the Lord, and Jacob offers sacrifices and calls upon the Lord, and then in a vision during the night, likely a dream, God spoke to Jacob. God had spoken to Jacob in his dreams before. In this phrase, the visions of the night, certainly sounds like dreams. And and this phrase is only used in two other places in the Scripture, both in the book of Job, and it's clear there that it is speaking of dreams. Job 33, verses 14 through 16, For God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. So Joseph has gone to Beersheba. He's offered sacrifices to God, likely on the altar built by his father Isaac. And that night as he sleeps, God speaks to him in his dreams. Now, unlike the direction that God had given Isaac, this time God instructs Jacob to leave Canaan and go down to Egypt. God tells him not to fear. Jacob perhaps was in fear of the journey being difficult at his advanced age, perhaps fearing displeasing God by leaving Canaan, perhaps fears about what would become of his family in the land of Egypt. If they leave the promised land and go to this foreign nation, what what will become of his sons and his grandsons? Whatever his fears were, God speaks peace to him, telling him not to fear. He reassures him of the promise that that he will make Jacob's descendants into a great nation. But notice what he says in verse 3. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. It is God's intention, God's plan to fulfill his promise of multiplying Jacob's descendants into a great nation, not while they inhabit the promised land, but rather while they are absent from it, dwelling in Egypt. Now that is a strange thing for God to do. I mean, God has promised them the land of Canaan. Why would he take them out of it, remove them to a foreign land in order to fulfill his promise of making them into a great nation? And why Egypt of all places? I mean, Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world at that time. It was a center for culture, for learning, and for religion. If the family of Jacob was to become a great nation, a holy nation, separated unto the Lord, Egypt is the last place, you would think, to send them for that to happen. It's more likely they would be assimilated into the Egyptian culture. They would become captivated by the prosperity, the advanced uh, technology that this nation enjoyed and, and begin to adopt the ways of life of the Egyptians and perhaps even their religion. Going to Egypt, I would think, would be dangerous 
for the, the family of Jacob and the promise of making them a great nation. But this is exactly where God sends them. He sends them to Egypt, and he says that it is while they are there that, that he will make them into a great nation. And then the Lord reaffirms the promises that he had made to Jacob when he left Canaan the first time in verse 4. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. So there are three promises that God makes here in verse 4. First, God promises to be with Jacob and by extension with the rest of the family as they go down to Egypt. And this is important because many of the religions of that day uh, viewed their gods as territorial. Uh, They were the god of this land or that sea, and and there might be uh, another land would be ruled by a different god. So for the Lord to promise that he would be present with his people when they left the land of Canaan and went to Egypt is to say that God is not bound by geography. He is promising his presence with them wherever they go. Not only will they stay intact as a holy people, but he will prosper them and multiply them in Egypt. So not only is God not bound geographically, He can be present with Jacob in Canaan. He can be present with Jacob in Syria. He can be present with Jacob in Egypt. But where his presence is, there is his power also. God can work in Egypt. He's not like other gods. He is the Lord of all the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Jacob can lay his fears to rest. The the God of all the earth will be with him. And as the early church father John Christosom said in his sermon on this text, What could be more blessed than to have God as a traveling companion? So that's the first promise that God makes to Jacob. The second promise is that he will bring him back again to the land of Canaan. Now, Jacob himself won't return until his sons bring his body back for burial. He will never again see the land of Canaan with his eyes in the flesh. And his descendants won't actually return to claim their inheritance for 400 years. And Jacob likely knows this. This was probably part of his fear. God had told Abraham, Genesis 15, 13, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Jacob likely realized that this journey to Canaan was the beginning of the fulfillment of this period of affliction and slavery. And he doesn't want that for his sons and his grandsons. Who would? But God reassures him that he will be with them. He will bring them back again to the land of promise. God had a plan, a plan to make Jacob's descendants into a great nation, but first... They must be sent into bondage in a foreign land. God gave that prophecy to Abraham, and he continued saying, And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. We heard about that judgment in the psalm that we read this morning. 
And God continued and said, But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. See, God's timing included other things. The Amorites who lived in the land of Canaan would continue to progress in sin and wickedness. And God would later use the Israelites to judge the Amorites when he brings them back to the land of Canaan 400 years later. God's plan was going to require that Jacob's family leave the land of Canaan, suffer slavery in Egypt, and learn to wait on the Lord and to trust in his promises. The third promise that God makes to Joseph, that to Jacob is that Joseph would put his hand on his eyes. This is a reference to Jacob's death and the fact that Joseph would be with him and be the one to close Jacob's eyes when he died. This must have been a meaningful promise to Jacob. It's a special grief to a parent to lose a child and to mourn for their child's death. Jacob had mourned for Joseph. So to have this promise from God first assures Jacob that the news he had received from his sons is indeed true. Joseph lives. And second, that Joseph, his son, will outlive him, that he will be by his side. They will be reunited. So I'm sure Jacob was comforted by this vision in the night and the promises that God makes to him. And so he takes his family and he journeys to Egypt. And what follows is a a detailed account of the names of all of those who are descended from Jacob, who traveled with him to Egypt. And there are a couple of important points regarding these names. First, we know that the tribes of Israel take their names from Jacob's sons. But his grandsons, who are listed in this chapter, are important as well because they are listed in several other places of Scripture as important heads of households within the various tribes. And so we can see the, the continuity of the scriptures. We can see the accuracy of the scriptures, that things that are recorded hundreds and hundreds of years later correspond to what is written here in Genesis. But more importantly, verse 8 says this. It says, Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Now, this is the third time the phrase children of Israel has been used in the scriptures. The previous two uses were both, though, for the sake of the reader. As the reader is reading this historical account, it would say things like, therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do such and such. But now, for the first time in context, Jacob's descendants are referred to as the children of Israel in that moment This is an important milestone in the life of the family that will become a nation. It's a title that comes to be used frequently throughout the scriptures regarding this nation that descends from Jacob. And we still use the phrase today when we talk about the people of God in the Old Testament. We call them the children of Israel. So that's important. But perhaps even more important and easier to miss is the importance of the total number of the names. All of those who went to Egypt. Jacob's family is presented to us in four groups. Leah's sons and and grandchildren, then Zilpah, Leah's maid, then Rachel, then Rachel's maid, Bilhah. And the total is given to us in verse 26. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt 
who came from his body, besides Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. Uh, I don't want to dive too deeply into the math surrounding all these numbers, but this number is comprised of all those who descended from Jacob directly and traveled with him to Egypt. So it doesn't include Judah's two sons who died in Canaan. It doesn't include Joseph and his two sons who are already in Egypt. The total number is 66 in addition to Jacob. Jacob makes 67. And in the next verse, we're given the final number, verse 27. The sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. So this is the number of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt. 66 of his descendants traveled with him. Jacob is number 67. His three descendants already in Egypt, Joseph and his two sons. This brings the total number of the house of Jacob to 70. Their wives are not counted, not being descended directly from Jacob, but married into the family. And this this number 70 is important. First of all, the number 70 throughout the scriptures denotes fullness or completeness. So this is the full house of Israel going down to Egypt. But more than that, this is the same number as the number of nations listed in the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. These were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations in their nations. And from these nations, from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. And there are 70 nations listed in Genesis chapter 10, representing the fullness of humanity. These nations are the ones that God scattered at Babel. Deuteronomy 32 then brings the list of nations in Genesis 10 together with the list of Jacob's descendants here in Genesis 46, saying, when the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, we're talking about Babel, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. So we're told that when God scattered the people at Babel in Genesis 10, that he intentionally separated them into 70 nations in order to correspond to the number of the children of Israel who went to Egypt. What is the significance of that correspondence? Well, I believe it is this. As God moves the children of Israel into Egypt, they're intending to make of them a great nation, a holy nation, separated unto himself. He is constituting the house of Jacob, the the nation of Israel, as a sort of new humanity, separated unto himself, those who are in special relationship to God via the covenant of promise. But Israel's not a new humanity in order to replace the rest of humanity, but rather to provide the means of salvation to the nations. It's through the seed of Abraham, Christ, who is brought into the world through this covenant community of Israel that all the families of the earth, all 70 of them separated at Babel, would be blessed. As John Salehammer has noted in his commentary, Scripture has gone to great lengths to portray the new nation of Israel as the new humanity. The blessing that is to come through Abraham and his offspring is a restoration of the original blessing of Adam, a blessing that was lost in the fall. 
And so we can see how important this list of names is because it's making this theological point, a point that we will return to in a few moments. But first, I want to back up and show you something else important that has happened at the beginning of this chapter. When Jacob has his vision and God speaks to him, there's a pattern to this vision, a pattern that is important. Notice these four elements. God calls Jacob by name twice. Jacob responds with, here I am. God identifies himself, and then God assigns Jacob a mission. Go down to Egypt. These four elements constitute a pattern that is more or less repeated at very key points that prove pivotal in the advancement of redemptive history. You remember the testing of Abraham in Genesis 22. This is where God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. This pattern is repeated twice in that chapter, actually. When God calls Abraham, he calls him by his name twice. Abraham responds, here I am. God reveals himself and then commissions Abraham first to sacrifice his son Isaac, and then again, the second time, gives him the key promise that a seed would come from his offspring who would bless the nations. Now, this passage is later quoted by the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians as he explains the key doctrine of justification by faith alone. This is a key theological concept throughout the Scriptures. Then we have our current text in Genesis 46 where God calls and commissions Jacob to take the family to Egypt. The next time we see this pattern is in Exodus 3 with the call of Moses at the burning bush. God calls Moses' name twice. Moses responds, here I am. God reveals himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then assigns Moses the mission of delivering the children of Israel from their bondage in Egypt. Surely this is a key point in redemptive history. It's the point when the children of Israel become the nation of Israel. And more than that, Throughout the scriptures, the Egyptian bondage is represented as symbolic of our slavery to sin. The exodus represents our redemption, the deliverance accomplished by Christ, who is called a prophet like Moses, who leads the captives free. Again, this pattern is followed in the calling of Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 3. There the young Samuel is in the tabernacle when God speaks to him. God speaks his name several times, but the last time God calls Samuel's name twice. Samuel responds, speak for your servant hears, which is essentially the same as to say, here I am. God reveals himself to the young Samuel and then commissions him as a prophet gives him a message for Eli the priest, and Samuel becomes the prophet of God in Israel, the prophet who anoints both Saul and David to be kings over the nation. Surely a turning point in redemptive history, the establishment of the Davidic kingship from whom Christ would descend as the king of Israel who will sit on the throne forever. And finally, to to pull all of this together, this pattern is seen again one time in the New Testament on the road to Damascus and the call of the Apostle Paul. The risen and glorified Christ appears to him and calls his Hebrew name twice, saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Interestingly, his response is a little different. He says, who are you, Lord? Christ then reveals himself. Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now the apostle responds with the response we might expect in the pattern. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Which is to say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Here I am. What do you want me to do? And at this point, the Lord assigns him the mission of taking the name of Christ before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And so the great missionary, church planter, and servant of Christ is appointed and commissioned to his work, subsequently spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ across the Roman Empire. The blessing of Abraham's seed goes to the nations via this descendant of Benjamin, Jacob's youngest son. And so it was, the nations began to come to Christ, united to him by faith in the church. Universal begins to grow and spread throughout the known world, and local churches begin to pop up all around the Mediterranean Sea, wherever this apostle goes. So how does all of this relate to the story of Jacob in Genesis 46? Well, in Genesis 46, we see that Israel constitutes a new humanity equal to the nations of the dispersion through whom the blessing of Abraham's seed would be spread to the nations. But first, that seed must be planted in the corner of Egypt and left to germinate for 400 years. Then the nation would be harvested out of that Egyptian soil and taken to the land of promise. Similarly, the Apostle Paul traveled throughout the world planting churches in every city. The seeds of the kingdom planted in every nation. A new humanity, a people in covenant with God who have been given new life and left to germinate and grow now for 2,000 years. And just as Jacob and his sons had to learn to trust the promises of God and wait patiently for the redemption, so too must we. As we consider our particular local church, we're even smaller than the family of Jacob was. They were 70 people. We're less than half that. It might be easy to despair at our ever becoming a holy nation, which the church is called in 1 Peter It might be easy to become discouraged at the slowness of the growth of the church numerically, the slowness of our own personal growth and sanctification, or the current state of the universal church even as we look at the culture that surrounds us. We might come to share some of the fears that Jacob surely was troubled by as he went to Beersheba to pray, fear of what is to become of us in this culture that becomes less and less friendly to Christ in his church, fear of what is to become of our children as we raise them in this nation and culture which is increasingly becoming foreign to us, fear of misstepping and disobeying God by going down to Egypt, as it were, and perhaps becoming enmeshed in a godly culture, in a godless culture. But just as Jacob's fears were set aside upon the assurance of the promise of God, so too are ours. Yes, We are a small church, but we are one of the seeds of the promised kingdom of priests, a holy nation, just a shadow of the coming kingdom. And that is not a cause for despair, 
For just as God had ordained that Jacob's family go down to Egypt, and it was there in Egypt that God would work to multiply them greatly, so too God has ordained the time and the place of our sojourn. He put us here in America, in rural Michigan in 2023 on purpose. This is his plan. It's not an accident. It's not a misstep. It's God's purpose for us. This is where he wants us. And it is here that God will deal with us to complete the good work that he has begun in us. Some of Jacob's sons and grandsons who are listed in chapter 46 go on to be the heads of large houses and tribes, numerous in Israel. But some of them are the heads of small houses that are small in number, such as Dan or Benjamin or Simeon. But they're still tribes and families of the nation of Israel. And so it is with us. Whether God would multiply us greatly or but a little, we are still a part of his kingdom, a part of a larger whole. We're one family in the holy nation that is the church. We're part of of something that C.S. Lewis describes as a church that is spread out through all time and space, rooted in eternity and terrible as an army with banners. We may be but a tiny platoon in that army, but we have been given orders by our captain and our king. The battle is his, and we have but to obey. Like Jacob, he has promised to be with us wherever we go. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So yes, we are raising our children and our grandchildren in the midst of a pagan and idolatrous nation, but God is with us. The Lord of hosts upon our side doth constantly remain. The God of Jacob's our refuge, us safely to maintain. Psalm 46, 7. He is actively working to preserve us, to grow and multiply His church. For He has promised, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Yes, we are surrounded by a wicked and corrupt culture that would seek to influence us and our children. But just as Israel was in Egypt, but not of Egypt, so too we are in the world, but not of the world. You know that Jesus prayed for us? He prayed for you and for me. In John chapter 17, in what we typically call his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed, and this is what he prayed for us. He said, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now, James tells us that the effective Fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. I think his prayers avail much with the Father. And he prayed for us that God would preserve us from the evil one, that God would keep us safe and secure in his hands, and that we would be sanctified and made holy in the truth of his word. What a beautiful prayer and a wonderful promise for us. 
Just as Jacob feared the beginning of the Egyptian captivity, we know that our time in this world will be attended by trials, by tribulations. But God has promised not only to be with Israel, but to bring them up again to the promised land. And so Christ has promised his church. Not only did he say, I will be with you to the end of the age, but he also said, in the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And then the Spirit, speaking through Peter, assures us that Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He will bring us safely home to God at the appointed time. Our God, who is the Lord of hosts, is still upon our side. The God of Jacob, our refuge forever, will abide. Psalm 46.11 Israel had to learn patience and trust in the promises of God. They didn't know the exact timing of the promised deliverance, of their receiving their inheritance in the land of Canaan. Neither do we. We do not know the timing. We don't know what God's intention is for what he might do in this church. We don't know what his timing is for when Christ will return and take us to receive our promised inheritance in the kingdom. But we know that his promises are sure. We know that ours is but to wait patiently and trust in his word. Just as Jacob and his sons were to conduct themselves as shepherds throughout their sojourn in Egypt, And the reason for this partially was that it would make them an abomination to the Egyptians, and so they would remain separate from the Egyptian culture. So, too, we are to conduct ourselves in the world. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.12, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conduct ourselves in the world in simplicity and with godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom but by the grace of God. We are, he writes to the Philippians, to do all things without complaining and disrupting, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Our hope is in the promise of God for our inheritance in the world to come. And when that day comes, that the Son of Man returns seated in the clouds with a sickle in his hand to reap the harvest of the earth, our prayer is that there will be a great harvest to reap. And small though our part may have been, we trust that that harvest will be pleasing in his sight and that he, when he returns, will find us faithful. Jacob was not given the task of turning his family into a nation. That was the Lord's work. Jacob was simply to obey faithfully one step at a time. Go to Laban, work, get married, have kids, return to your father's house. Now go to Egypt where you will die, but die having fully obeyed the Lord, trusting that he will see it to completion, that he will deliver the land to your descendants at the appointed hour. And so the apostle wrote to the believers in Corinth, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 
Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. God planted the seeds of Israel in the soil of Egypt, fertilized them with the promise of his presence, which guaranteed the outcome that they would grow to become a great nation and be returned to the land of Canaan at the appointed time. Likewise, Christ has planted his church in the soil of this present world and promised his presence with us and given and a promise of a new home in the new world to come at the appointed time. He has planted us, Antioch Reformed Baptist Church in Attica, Michigan, in 2023. He put us here for such a time as this. Get married, raise kids, work jobs, pray for the peace of the nation where he has planted us. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Seek to live lives of holiness having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. He will build his church, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So let us be content with our circumstances and respond to God's calling upon us by saying, here we are, Lord, What? would you have us to do? And then let us be found faithful when he returns for the harvest in clouds of glory. Let's pray.